2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Dear Heavenly Father, you are so over-the-top good to us, so irrepressibly kind, incessantly faithful, and immeasurably generous. Thank you for the eternal encouragement and good hope you've already blessed us with in the gospel. There's zero doubt about where history is going or what we will be enjoying forever and ever. No eye has seen, ear heard, or mind imagined the things you guarantee us through the finished work of Jesus. Hallelujah. And you love us right now just as much as you ever will love us. Indeed, you love us as much as you love Jesus. For you have forgiven all our sins and made Jesus' righteousness ours. The saints in heaven are certainly more joyful than us, but not one bit more secure. Oh, such marvelous, inexhaustible, God-praising grace. Father, it's precisely because we have eternal encouragement that we unabashedly look to you for fresh encouragement. Some of us are right in the middle of hardships and heartaches that are depleting our emotional and spiritual resources. So with palms up, we make ourselves subjects of Paul's prayer in this text. Indeed, encourage our hearts as you alone can. By your Holy Spirit, assure us that you are aware and in control, engaged and at work. Forgive us when we think otherwise. Yes, Father, and strengthen us to move forward into this day and the week in front of us. It's not like life's other responsibilities stop when we are in crisis or semi-crisis mode. Give us power to do the next right gospel thing and fill our hearts and mouths with your grace. Help us to worship more than we worry, bless more than we curse, and rest more than we resent. Forgive us for trying to be self-sufficient. Free us to share our burdens, cares, and load with others. So very amen we pray in Jesus' wonderful and merciful name. They were a wicked people, and they were violent, and they hurt innocent people who were trying to do the right thing, and they were racist, and they were full of vitriol, and they were arrogant, they were proud, and they beat people. They beat men and women and children. They murdered people in the streets in broad daylight, and they were Americans, and they were police officers, and they were politicians, and they were elected officials, and they were white. And they did these awful, atrocious, sickening things to fellow Americans. They did these awful, atrocious, sickening things to fellow Americans because of the color of their skin. 
because they were black. The civil rights movement of the 1960s shows us just how deep sin runs in our veins. The civil rights movement of the 1960s confronts you with just how messed up people are. And if you don't think that human beings are born sinners and have been wrecked by Adam's sin, then study what took place in America in the 1960s. What white people did to the African-American community in the 1960s is appalling. And yet we like to think America is God's special country, that he has blessed this country more than others. I don't think so. We have done and we continue to do some very wicked things and we've still got a long way to go to heal the racism that is in our blood and in the DNA of our country. And so this issue of the civil rights movement has been on my heart lately for two reasons. Number one, I've been watching the 60s documentary on Netflix. I highly recommend it to you. I love all things 60s. I love the TV shows in the 60s. I love the music in the 60s. I love pop culture, the clothes that they wore. I love the preachers. I listen to a lot of preachers from the 60s. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, S. Lewis Johnson, W.A. Criswell, John Gerstner. So I love all things 60s, and I wish I lived during that era, but God had other plans, so I missed it by a few years. But I've been waiting for this documentary, the 60s, to come on Netflix because it was on CNN a few years ago, and I missed it. So it finally came on Netflix, and I started watching it, and I was struck and saddened once again by how evil white people were to blacks in the 60s. It was just awful. And I find myself, I found myself heartbroken as I watched what happened back then. This documentary shows footage of how sickening white people were to blacks as the civil rights movement was picking up steam in America. I've been sickened at how awful my people White people, southern white people were treating blacks. It was awful. Now, I've read a lot about the civil rights movement. I've seen footage through the years. I've seen a lot of pictures, but I didn't live through it. And so to see videos and news footage, once again, of how awful African Americans were being treated, it was just so heartbreaking to me over the last few weeks as I was watching this. I've long trumpeted my hatred for racism because I saw plenty of it growing up in the South. But seeing it again, seeing it fresh, it just broke my heart. And so I suggest you watch the 60s on Netflix. You might be led to repent even if you were not there. And so that's one reason why the civil rights movement has been on my mind lately. But another reason is this. The anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King Jr. occurred a few weeks ago on April 4th. And I've been listening a lot to U2 lately. And you may not know this about U2, the iconic Irish rock group, but they have several songs about Martin Luther King Jr. So in 1984, they included two songs in homage to Martin Luther King on their album, The Unforgettable Fire. And the first song is one that you probably all know. It's called Pride in the Name of Love. 
It's a song about Dr. King's non-violent activism in the U.S. civil rights movement that ultimately led to his assassination. And in the song, the singer Bono sings this. Early morning, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky. A little falsetto part. Free at last, they took your life. They could not take your pride. And if you know your history, the lyrics aren't correct because Dr. King was actually assassinated on the evening of April 4th, not in the morning, but Bono humbly uh, acknowledges his lyrical mistake. He's Irish. So we let him off. He doesn't know his American history. But there's a second song on the album titled MLK, which closes out to the unforgettable fire. MLK is a, a brief lullaby. It's this pensive song with very simple lyrics that are a tribute to Dr. King. And in the song, Bono sings these words, sleep, sleep tonight, and may your dreams be realized. If the thundercloud passes rain, so let it rain, let it rain, rain down on he. I think what you 2 is saying in this song as a tribute to Dr. King and all the civil rights activists, is that even though there may be dark days ahead and thunderclouds may pass over you and there may be rain and the road is long, the days will eventually pass and your dreams will be realized. But you can sleep now. Like a child, you can sleep now. You can rest because your dreams one day will be realized. And that's exactly what Dr. King said In the very last sermon he preached, which he preached the night before he was killed, the final words of his final sermon, which was titled, I See the Promised Land, were as follows. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It was a very moving sermon by a great preacher who was moved to love and serve his people. And I think that is exactly how the preacher of Hebrews feels about his audience. The audience that he's writing this sermon to. He loves them and he's moved to remind them that the promised land awaits. He's reminding them that they can sleep tonight like a child because their dreams will be realized one day. They will see the promised land. Now, why does he comfort them with these words? Why does the pastor who's writing the book of Hebrews tell his audience that the road, that though the road is long and though thunderclouds rain down on them, still yet their dreams of the promised land of heaven will still be realized? Why does he tell them that? Here's why. Because they were being persecuted 
Because they were suffering because they were disciples of Jesus. They were suffering because they left the old covenant behind and they were now trusting in Jesus. And so their newfound faith in Jesus as the Messiah was bringing persecution and suffering into their lives. The preacher will talk about this in chapter 10. We'll get to it eventually. But in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 32 through 36, he says this. But recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. They were being persecuted. They were suffering, and they needed a fresh gospel exhortation to press on to the promised land, to press on to heaven, to press on to the city that is to come. The Hebrews were being reminded that the longed-for day of Sabbath rest was still before them. And that the day would come when they would have rest. Rest from their enemies. Rest from this fallen, broken world. And rest from the plague of indwelling sin. But the preacher is also reminding them that they can enjoy that Sabbath rest now. They can enjoy a true Sabbath rest even as they wait for that final Sabbath rest in heaven. So there's this already not yet aspect to Sabbath rest. There's this already not yet aspect or component to what it means to be a Christian, a disciple, one in union with Christ. In one sense, Jesus has already secured rest for us. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, we can rest from all of our attempts to try to earn God's favor. That's the already of the already not yet. And that's what we'll look at next week, Lord willing. But this week, we're going to look at the not yet of the already not yet. We have not yet entered into our final Sabbath rest. That awaits us in heaven. And so our big idea today is simply this, preach the gospel to yourself every day. In fact, I was, because of the preacher of Hebrews says today so much in chapters 3 and 4, I was tempted to say, preach the gospel to yourself today. Because the fact of the matter is that none of us live in tomorrows. We only live in todays. None of us ever live in a tomorrow. We only live in today. Now, we may stress and worry about our tomorrows, or we may have regret about our past, but we only live in today. And what will help us to deal with the regret of our past or the worry and stress of the future? The only thing that will help us today is if we preach the gospel to ourselves today. Now, I know you know this because we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves all the time here at Grace, but it's true. And on any given Sunday, there's always someone here who needs to be reminded to preach the gospel to themselves, to rehearse the gospel. On any given Sunday, somebody comes in here and their heart 
is being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin on any given Sunday. There are many of us who need to be reminded, preach the gospel to yourself, rehearse the gospel. And if we are ever going to sustain our hope in the promise of our future with Jesus, we must keep rehearsing the gospel all day, every day. We must keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. And I get that big idea from the fact that the preacher of Hebrews mentions the gospel two times in the passage that we're looking at today. We must keep hitting refresh on the gospel. We must gather each Sabbath, each Sunday, and get recalibrated by the gospel because this is where the first generation of Israelites went wrong. They did not believe they were not rehearsing the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, did they hear the gospel really all the way back then? As they were in Egypt, as they left Egypt, did they hear the gospel? The answer is yes. They heard the gospel, that God loves and forgives sinners and credits them with his righteousness. See, the gospel did not start with Jesus in the New Testament in the gospels. The gospel goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God made a promise to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan, the devil. So the gospel is as old as Genesis 3. But you could even make the argument that the gospel is older than Genesis 3. You can make the argument that the gospel is an eternal gospel because that's exactly what Revelation 14.6 says. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So the gospel is eternal because in eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit determined to create a people whom he knew would fall into sin and to save out of that fallen mass of humanity his elect people. So the gospel is eternal because of the covenant of redemption that God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit covenanted together in the past. But the gospel is also eternal because it will be the center of our songs for all of eternity. As Revelation 5, 9 says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the gospel is eternal. And that's why we speak of it all the time here at Grace. The message that we center on as a church goes all the way back into eternity past and all the way into eternity future. And that sounds to me like a good enough reason to focus on it and not to make our sermons about seven ways to be a better husband or three ways to be a better parent. Now, the gospel addresses all of those issues, but those issues are not our main message. The eternal gospel is. And it was this eternal gospel message that the first generation of Israelites heard, and they refused to believe. In fact, the preacher of Hebrews tells us twice that they did not believe the good news, the gospel The same gospel that we have heard. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And then the preacher says again in a few verses later, Hebrews 4, 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, 
And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. The words here, good news, in the Greek language are the word gospel. And this is why I say that we must stay busy reminding one another about the gospel because it sustains our faith. It sustains our belief. It keeps us centered. It helps us keep our eyes on our future rest. And what the preacher of Hebrews wants the Hebrews to know is that they have to strive to enter into that rest that awaits them, awaits them in heaven. We have to strive to enter into the rest that is already ours. We have to work in order to rest, as odd as that sounds. We have to strive and use our spiritual muscles in order to enter that rest and to enjoy that rest right now. And the work that we have to do now is one of belief. We have to continue to believe the gospel, the good news, and not turn to the law to be justified. And that's exactly what the Hebrews were in danger of doing. They were being tempted to turn from Jesus back to Moses. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So he's continuing his thought from chapter 3. He reminds the Hebrews that the way to enter into the eternal Sabbath rest with Jesus on the new heavens and new earth is to be united to Jesus by faith. The first generation of Israelites that left Egypt under Moses' leadership under Moses' leadership, they did not enter Canaan. They did not enter the promised land because of their unbelief. They heard the gospel. They heard the good news, the same gospel that we have heard, the same good news that we have heard, but they did not believe it. So they never entered into Canaan. They never entered into that rest because in their day, they did not say to one another, preach the gospel to yourself today. They should have said that to one another. Preach the gospel to yourself today. But they didn't do that, so they didn't believe. And so the preacher is reminding the Hebrews that if they reject the gospel, if they return to the old covenant, if they return to Moses, then they will not enter into the promised land, they will not enter into heaven, because they will prove that they did not really believe, that they were not united to Christ by faith. But the preacher says those in union with Christ will enter that rest. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest... As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Here's what he's saying here. Those who believe the gospel will enter into that eternal rest with Jesus, and they can enjoy that rest right now. And the preacher quotes Psalm 95 two more times here to make his point. And he explains that God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. And I love how he says in verse 4, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. Now, the preacher of Hebrews knew that the passage that he was quoting was Genesis chapter 1. I mean, it's the very first chapter of the Bible. You're not going to miss that scriptural reference. He obviously knows his Old Testament. But with tongue-in-cheek, He says this, 
he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And he says that to a group of people who prided themselves on knowing the Old Testament. You have to understand that the preacher here is not ignorant of the scriptural reference. He knows it. He's just being sarcastic. Tongue-in-cheek. Some preachers speak with tongue-in-cheek. And his point in quoting Genesis is to show that the rest that God offers us in the gospel is nothing less than the rest that God enjoyed after he created this world. In other words, God's rest on the seventh day became his permanent abiding condition. In Genesis 1, you get the repeated refrain, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. There was evening and there was morning the third day, and so on. But on the seventh day, you don't find those words. You find instead that God rested. He ceased from his work. That means that this day of Sabbath rest does not ever come to an end. It's not brought to an end like the other days. God's Sabbath rest goes on forever. It's eternal. And that means then that the Sabbath rest is still open. It's open for those who believe the gospel. Today, the Sabbath rest is open for all who would come to Jesus. And that's exactly what the preacher says next. Look at verse 5. And again in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today. Saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I love this section of Hebrews because the preacher repeats himself so many times. He just keeps repeating Psalm 95, which he started repeating in chapter 3, and he keeps repeating certain words and phrases, and that's one complaint that I have heard about my preaching. I hear people say, he always repeats himself. Stop repeating things. I've even had people write anonymous cards here at Grace saying, please stop repeating yourself. Please quit saying the same thing over and over again. Well, guess where I learned it? The Bible. The Bible repeats itself all the time. Why? Because we are so slow to turn, to learn. Let me ask you, does anybody remember the big idea from two weeks ago? I don't think I do. (laughs) It's my point. It's why we repeat. It's why we repeat. We're so slow to learn. One of my Old Testament professors in seminary, Dr. Gordon Johnston, who had a very significant impact on my life, he used to always say this in class, repetition is the hallmark of Hebrew rhetoric. Repetition is the hallmark 
of Hebrew rhetoric. The Hebrew language in the Old Testament is full of repetition. And so I learned from Dr. Johnson and I learned from my church history professor, Dr. Jeff Bingham, and I learned from the Bible that truths must be repeated in order for people to learn them, even repeated in the same sermon. And so that's one reason why I love this section in Hebrews is because the preacher just keeps repeating Psalm 95. He's like a broken record with Psalm 95. And he repeats again that the first generation that came out of exile in Egypt, that they did not believe the good news, the gospel, and therefore they did not enter God's rest. But, he says, the next generation of Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, they did enter into the rest of the promised land, but it was not the eternal Sabbath rest of God. It was just a temporal rest from their enemies in Canaan, the promised land. It was not the final rest on the new earth. And that's why the preacher of Hebrews repeats the word today in verse 7. He's quoting David in Psalm 95, where in David's day, the opportunity to enter God's rest was still in effect. So David would say to his people in his day, preach the gospel to yourself today. And the preacher of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrews, preach the gospel to yourself today. And this preacher is saying to you, preach the gospel to yourself today. And this promise was still in effect in David's day because the gospel was still being offered to sinners. So understand this, as long as there are sinners on the earth, there remains a Sabbath rest for people who believe the good news. And it's a twofold rest that is always offered in the gospel. There's this already, not yet aspect to the Sabbath rest that is offered to sinners in the gospel. So whether you were alive in the first generation under Moses' leadership, those who came out of exile in Egypt, or whether you were alive under Joshua's leadership, or whether you were under David's leadership, the Sabbath rest of God that is offered in the gospel is twofold. First, it offers you eternal rest, meaning it offers you resurrection with a new glorified body where you will glorify and enjoy the triune God on the new earth forever. That's the not yet of the already not yet. We don't have glorified bodies now, but we will then. And sickness will be no more on that day. And sin, oh sin, Sin will be no more. That's part of the rest that awaits us. Imagine that. Imagine never sinning again. I don't think those lyrics were in the song that we sang, were they? I wish they'd write another lyrics. I can only imagine never sinning again. Now, I'll sing that verse all day long. Imagine never sinning again. I cannot wait to never sin again. It's all I've known. It's part of the Sabbath rest that awaits us, never sinning again. Rest from indwelling sin. Rest from temptation. That's rest, amen? People always ask me, well, what are we going to be doing for all of eternity? I don't know all of the answers about what we will or won't do. I have many ideas, but I do know these two truths about heaven. Number one, there will be Chick-fil-A. If it's heaven, 
that has to be Chick-fil-A. That's why they're closed on Sunday now so they can be open for all of eternity. (laughs) There will be Chick-fil-A, and there will be Chick-fil-A in Santa Maria one day soon. Thank you, Larry Opple. (laughs) Number two thing about heaven, there will be no mayonnaise. And that's all I know for sure. Here's how I know that there will be no mayonnaise in heaven. Because one, mayonnaise is a result of the fall, a result of Adam's sin. And mayonnaise makes me sin. So since part of the rest that awaits me is that I will never sin, and since mayonnaise makes me sin, therefore the logical conclusion is that mayonnaise will not be allowed on the new earth. And that's why the word gospel means good news. But seriously, and you know what, and I love the ladies here, because last week at Greg's celebration, they were, because Pastor Greg and I both hate mayonnaise, bless these ladies' hearts, they were worried about that macaroni salad that they made, they said, what about Benji and Greg, what are they going to eat? I just love that, that you love us enough that that even crossed your mind, thank you, but seriously, I will not sin again on that day. I cannot wait for that day. I cannot wait for that day of rest, a day of Sabbath rest from the ever-plaguing presence of indwelling sin. No more indwelling sin. No more putting sin to death. No more mortification of sin. I cannot wait. I told my wife Heather a few weeks ago that if she can just hang on a little bit longer There's a better version of me coming. And I promised her that the best version of me was all hers in heaven. You'll find us at the Chick-fil-A, sitting together, drinking sweet tea. As you stumble around looking for the mayonnaise packets. And I will gladly say on that day, it was thrown into the abyss. But I promised Heather a few weeks ago, we were talking about this, I said, hang on, there's a better version of me coming And this better version of me is all yours in heaven. And that's the hope that the gospel offers. As Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, what then is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon that the husband and wife look forward to is the throne and the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Within this vision for marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. And I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel Each spouse then should give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. Isn't that good? Listen, if you have marriage struggles right now, let me recommend this book to you, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller, to encourage you to get out of your own self-absorbed little kingdom where you reign as king or queen and to open your eyes to see what God is doing 
in your spouse and to join that journey and not to come alongside them when they sin and say, I know where God's taking you, but you're not quite there yet. Not to do that, but to look at them and say, I I know you're going to get there one day. You're covered with his righteousness now. You're blameless, righteous in Christ, and you will be on that day, and I want to partner with you and God. Wouldn't that change your marriage? Don't you want that for your marriage? Do you just want to exist as roommates? Don't you want the romance and the love that pulled you together in the beginning? You can have that today because of the gospel. Now, how do we get our hearts to that place? How do we get our sinful, selfish hearts to a place where we can say those words to our spouse or to other people? Here's how. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself today. That's how you do it. You'll never be able to look someone in the eye and speak those hope-filled words unless you are preaching the gospel to your own heart every single day. And what happens when gospel rehearsal becomes the norm for us? We stay focused on the end. We stay focused on our future glorification, on our future Sabbath rest. When we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, it will help to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who is faithful to finish what he started. The one who's faithful to finish what he started in our own individual lives, the one who's faithful to finish what he started in our spouse's life, the one who's faithful to finish what he started in our children's lives, and the one who is faithful to finish what he started in the life of this church. So do you have marriage problems today, struggles? Or do you have struggles with your children? Is there relational conflict here in this church body, with one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, what will help bring healing to those relationships is when you get yourself recalibrated with the gospel so that you can say to that person, whoever it is, I see who God is making you, and it excites me, and I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne, and when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. A day is coming, Grace, when sin will be done and we will finally become who we were slowly being conformed to be through the years. A day is coming, an eternal Sabbath day of rest is coming when sin will be no more. No more. And boy, are we going to party then. Ain't no party like a Sabbath rest party. Ain't no party like a resurrection party. And it will be a party because we will finally be free from sin, free from sickness, free from the devil's accusations, free from relational strife, free from heartache and body aches and headaches and stomach aches, free, free at last. At last, we'll be free. At last, we'll be who we were supposed to be. At last, we'll be with Jesus. This is what and this is why we got to preach to ourselves every day. And this is the gospel rest, the Sabbath rest that is being offered to anyone who would call on Jesus Will you come to him today? Will you believe today? Will you believe the good news? Will you believe the gospel today? Let's end by quoting 
a preacher, perhaps it's appropriate to let Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. close out our sermon. This preacher who's preaching right now would like to read the last words to Dr. King's last sermon again. And I think the preacher of the book of Hebrews would like what Dr. King said in his last sermon because it sounds a lot like what the preacher of Hebrews is saying in his sermon. Dr. King said, Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So don't throw away your confidence, Christian. You've got difficult days ahead, but you will receive what is promised. Hold fast your confidence and your boasting in your hope, and don't fear any man. Hold your original confidence to the end. Strive to enter that rest. They can take your life, but they cannot take your pride. So sleep. Sleep tonight. Your dreams will be realized. And if the thunderclouds pass rain, let it rain down. Let it rain down on you. For you have been to the mountaintop, Christian. You've seen the promised land. Your eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So rest. Rest. Because of Jesus, we are free at last. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have invited sinners to enter into your Sabbath rest. Thank you that you forgive sinners. You love sinners. You forgive us and you credit us with the righteousness that we need to stand in your presence. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of the gospel. So today, Father, Would the Spirit come and impress the gospel deep down into the nooks and crannies of our hearts that we would rub the gospel into our pores, Father, so that it would transform our own individual lives, our marriages, our parenting relationships here in this church body. Come and do that work, Father. May the Holy Spirit preach the gospel to our hearts today and then may we copy him and preach the gospel to ourself today. Do it for our joy and for your glory among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.